Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. All right. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day again to all the mothers. Um, As Keith was saying, this is our fourth week now in our Jesus and the Women of Faith series, where we're looking at Jesus's interactions with women in the Gospels. And I thought, given that today is Mother's Day, what better day to look at Jesus's interactions with his own mom, right, with Mary. When we declare the Apostles' Creed together, we confess that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, we're going to consider three interactions between Jesus and Mary this morning, but this confession is really the most significant of the interactions, right? Which is that Jesus had a mother. Interaction is much too small of a word for this. When God took on human flesh, his his humanity was miraculously conceived in Mary's womb, grew for about nine months. Mary delivered him, nursed him, changed him. She fled to Egypt to protect him. Jesus first learned to speak because Mary spoke to him. Meditate on that for a moment. The one who created the universe by speaking it into existence became human and learned to speak from his mother Mary. God in the flesh had a mom. He had an adoptive father, but he had a mom full stop. And that is a holy mystery that we should occasionally appreciate with awe. Now, I just want to get this out of the way from the start. I recognize that the topic of Mary can make some of us a little bit uncomfortable uh, because our Roman Catholic friends tend to emphasize Mary a lot. And uh, if that makes you uncomfortable, I just want to say I understand. I, uh, I share the discomfort. It's always been a little strange to me that Mary gets so much attention in some branches of the church, even though she she really doesn't feature that prominently in the Gospels, and I don't think she's even mentioned by name in any of the epistles. It reminds me that uh, in the Gospel of Luke, there's a moment where Jesus is teaching to a crowd, and a woman who is clearly impressed cries out and says, Blessed is the mother who gave birth to you and nursed you. And Jesus replies, well, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So, you know, if Jesus really wanted us to focus a lot of attention on his mother, I think he would have responded to this differently, right? I think he would have said, yes, my mother is the greatest, and uh, you should venerate her. But instead, Jesus changes the subject because... He wants to use this opportunity to teach on what makes a person truly blessed. And as far as Jesus is concerned, what makes a person truly blessed is not 
who they've given birth to or how many children they've had, but whether they're obedient to God. Now, of course, Jesus is not suggesting that his mother was not blessed. She was. You probably remember the first words that the angel says when he delivers the message that, G that Mary is going to give birth to Jesus. What, is, what does he say? He says, blessed are you, Mary, blessed and highly favored. So Jesus is not saying that Mary isn't blessed, but he seems to be saying that our focus shouldn't be on how blessed Mary is, but on how blessed we can become by being obedient to God. And there's, there's a similar moment in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Jesus is teaching a crowd inside of a, a house, and then he's told that his mother and brothers are waiting outside, and they, they want to speak to him. And Jesus says, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And then he points to everybody that's listening to him, and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, quick side note, this is uh, another example, another evidence of the fact that Jesus was very countercultural as a rabbi, because if he didn't have any women among his disciples, why would he say, here are my mother and my brothers, right? The implication there is that there are women in the crowd listening to him teach, and that was very countercultural for rabbi of, of the time. If you've been here the last couple weeks, you know that, because in that culture, it was thought men are the ones who should be studying Torah and learning from Torah and, and teaching Torah, not women. And yet, in this moment, the text implies that there are women in this crowd learning from Jesus, right? And Jesus counts them as his sisters and his, his mother. But one, anyway, once again... Here the subject of Jesus' mother comes up, right? And what does Jesus do? He changes the subject. So he, he takes the focus off of his blood relatives and says that his true family are those who do the will of God. So in both these cases, Jesus discourages focus on his blood relatives and instead encourages us to think about how we ourselves are capable of having this familial relationship with him, that we can be part of the family of God. So, in light of that, you know, I, I share the discomfort that many people have. I, I, I don't really see a scriptural basis for praying to Mary or seeing Mary as substantially different in, in essence from other human beings. But, she did have a very special role to play in God's plan of salvation. And that deserves respect. You know, especially when you consider that Jesus is the only guy in history who ever got to pick his own mom, right? And he, and he picked Mary, so that's got to count for something, right? So, okay, let's talk about Jesus' interactions with Mary. I've got three for us to consider. Now, we don't know much from Jesus' early years, but we do have one story from when Jesus was 12. And we find it in Luke chapter 2. Jesus' family went to Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. And after the fest festival ended, the caravan of travelers left, 
And Mary and Joseph assume that Jesus must be with other family members. He wasn't with them, but they assume that, you know, probably that he was hanging out with his cousin John, you know, the one that would eventually become John the Baptist. They probably thought, oh, yeah, you know, Aunt Elizabeth and Uncle Zechariah, they probably have their eyes on him. They're probably taking care of him. But after a full day of traveling without seeing Jesus, they realized that their family members didn't know where he was either. So they had lost him. And so they were panicked, and they started searching. They went back to Jerusalem. It took them three whole days to find Jesus. And would you believe it, when they finally found him, that precocious tween was in the temple in Jerusalem, and he was talking to the rabbis there, and, and they were so impressed at his level of comprehension and that he was even answering some of the questions that the people were asking. But Mary was not happy. She said, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And then Jesus the tween answered, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And we're told that Mary and Joseph did not understand what he was saying to them. I love this story because of how relatable it is. Like, parents, is there anything more terrifying than thinking you've lost your child? I can't imagine. Poor Mary and Joseph might, must have felt that awful mixture of fear and shame, right? Oh my goodness, is he okay? Is he hurt? Is he alive? And also, what was I thinking? Why wasn't I more vigilant? What kind of parent am I? Why did I just assume that he was with the rest of the family without checking? Jesus made his parents worried sick. And then, when he was found, their fear and shame turned into anger. Why have you treated us like this? Now, be honest, parents. If your 12-year-old disappeared for three days, and you finally found him, and you said, why have you treated us like this? And he said, why were you looking for me? How would that go over? Yeah, not good. Now, fortunately, that's not the only thing that Jesus says. He adds, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? I think that line helps us to see that Jesus was not intentionally being disobedient. He wasn't dishonoring his parents. He really is surprised that they were worried about him, that they were looking for him. He figured they would know that he needed to be in the temple, in his true father's house. Now, why would he think that? Well, my best guess is that Jesus, only being 12 years old, hadn't yet realized that his parents don't hear the heavenly father's voice as clearly as he does. Scripture does tell us that Jesus learned and grew. And uh, we know that he lived his life in constant communion with his heavenly father, so he heard the Father calling him to go to the temple, and he probably assumed, well, I assume God will tell my parents too, and they'll be listening, and they'll hear it. But they didn't. So I don't think Jesus was being rebellious here. I think he was more just unaware. Unaware of how much more in tune he was with the Father's voice. That's my theory, anyway. But whatever the case, 
What I want us to see is that Jesus' interactions with his mother included misunderstanding. He provoked his mother's anxiety. He provoked her anger. He provoked her to say, where have you been, young man? So for mothers here, I hope that you can take some comfort in that, right? If anxiety and anger and misunderstanding were part of Mary's experience, raising a boy who was sinless, you shouldn't be surprised when anxiety, anger, and misunderstanding are a regular part of raising your little sinners. <laughs> and the second interaction I want us to think about comes from the Gospel of John. Jesus was probably about 30 years old, and he was at a wedding, the wedding in Cana. This comes from John chapter 2. Look at the passage. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kinds used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. I'm sure most of you know what happens, right? The water is miraculously turned into wine, and not just any wine, but the best kind of wine, the uh, host of the banquet says, wow, you have saved the best until now. Now, that brief exchange between Mary and Jesus, that raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Mary realizes that the wine is gone, and she tells Jesus which implies that he assumes that he's going to be able to do something about this, that he's capable of doing something about it, which implies that she already knows that he is capable of the miraculous. I have to wonder if maybe, you know, there were times where food or wine ran out in their household and he had miraculously provided it. Maybe that was why uh, Mary thought he'd be able to do something in this situation. But Jesus seems reluctant to do anything, right? He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. So what does he mean? Well, that word hour is a clue. In the Gospel of John, when it speaks of Jesus' hour, it's talking about his death, his death on the cross. Shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus says that the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So when Jesus says, my hour has not come, it's like he's saying, it isn't time for me to die yet. Jesus knows that once he starts doing public miracles, he's going to attract attention. And his teaching is going to become widespread. And once that happens, some powerful people are going to perceive him as a threat. And then it won't be long before he's crucified. Now, of course, Jesus knows that dying on the cross is part of his mission. It is the culmination of his mission. Later in John's Gospel, 
with his crucifixion only just a few days away, Jesus will say, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came. So Jesus knows that the cross is part of the plan, but he's reluctant here to do anything that sets that in motion. He seems to be delaying the inevitable. Now, Mary doesn't argue with him. Right? As far as we know, she doesn't say anything to him. She just tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus fulfills his mom's request. So it's a strange interaction, right? Now, I don't like to be too speculative about what the Bible doesn't tell us, but it's hard not to speculate in this case, right? It's almost as if what is recorded is inviting us to speculate, Right? Because on the surface, the exchange just seems kind of nonsensical. I mean, you know, Mary says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Jesus, why are you bothering me with this? It's not time for me to die. Mary, servants, just do whatever he tells you. All right, guys, fill up the water jars. Fill, you know, and then he turns it into wine. So what is going on there? Why, why that flow in the conversation? How should we read between the lines? Well, here's one thing I'm sure of. I'm sure that Mary was not in a hurry to see her son die. Can we agree on that? We can be confident of that. Uh, one uh, clear indication of that comes from, from Scripture uh, in Luke. When Jesus is just eight days old, uh, Joseph and Mary take him to the temple to be dedicated. And a man named Simeon sees Jesus, knows that he's the Messiah. The Spirit reveals it to him, and he takes Jesus in his arms, and he prophesies over him, and he says that Jesus is going to be a revelation to the Gentiles and, and the glory of Israel. But he also said that this baby would cause conflict in Israel and expose people's hearts, right, both good and bad. And then the last words he said, he looked at Mary, and he said, and a sword will pierce your soul also. Because those words foreshadowed the pain that she would experience watching her son be rejected and crucified and killed. That was like a sword plunged right into her heart as it would be for any mother. So Mary certainly would not have wanted to force that sword to come any sooner than it needed to. But she also knew that that sword was going to come, right? At some point, it had to. She knew that. So with all this in mind, my favorite exp explanation for Jesus and Mary's exchange was actually suggested to me a few years ago by our very own Dean Collins. So I hope you don't mind, Dean, that <laughs> I give you credit for this. Um, but you're the first one that mentioned it to me. Uh, Dean said, maybe Jesus was giving Mary the opportunity to choose to let her son move forward with his calling. So this theory would say, Mary notices that the wine has run out. She knows Jesus has the power to do something about it, so she tells Jesus, they're out of wine. And Jesus knows that he can do something, but he also knows that if he does, the train to the cross is going to be leaving the station, Right? And he knows how painful that will be for his mother. And he doesn't want to move forward with that until she's ready too. 
So she says, well, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. So in saying that, this is the theory, Jesus gives Mary permission to hold on to him a little bit longer. But Mary knows that she can't hold on to him forever. She knows that Jesus should be the one to decide when it's time for him to go, not her. So she gives control over to Jesus, right? She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, but she doesn't know what Jesus is going to tell the servants or if, the, if Jesus is going to tell the servants anything, right? When she does that, she gives Jesus her blessing to move forward with his mission if he thinks it's time, right? And then once Jesus knows that he has his mom's blessing, he turns that water into wine. So I, I like it. I think it's a great theory. Thanks, Dean. <laughs> but however we read between the lines here, okay, it's clear that Jesus honors Mary, right? He honors Mary in one of two ways, right? Either by giving her the opportunity to hold on to him a little bit longer, or by doing a miracle, which she requests, even though he doesn't really think it's the right time to do it. Either way, Jesus takes Mary's will, her concerns, into consideration. He honors her. And, uh, and Mary, she's a good mom, right? Because she honors him too. She lets him make the decision about whether to turn that water into wine. She doesn't push him. So to the adult children here, pay attention to how Jesus honors his mom here. How he considers her concerns. And to those who are parents of adult children, consider how Mary lets go. How she respects her son's right to decide when it's time to follow his calling. How she hands over that control to him. Unless your adult child is unable to care for himself or herself, that's a good example to follow. Most adult children do not want their parents to make their decisions for them. But they do long for their parents to give their blessing on their autonomy. They want to hear them say, this is yours to decide, and I trust you to make the decision. Right? Just like Mary does here. And then the last interaction I want us to reflect on is the moment when the sword pierces Mary's heart. The Gospel of John tells us that she was there as Jesus was crucified. As Jesus bore the sin of the world, I'm sure that he suffered more than anybody else. But if there was someone who came in a second place on the suffering scale that day, I think it was Mary, right? Watching her own son be crucified. As any parent knows, witnessing your child's suffering is one of the worst kinds of suffering. So this moment is described in John 19. It says, When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So here we see, even as Jesus is in the throes of crucifixion, he wants to make sure that his mom is okay. 
He wants to make sure that she has what she needs when he's gone. Joseph had most likely died at this point, Mary's husband, because we don't hear anything about him. And Jesus, as the firstborn, would have been considered the one who was supposed to make sure that Mary was taken care of in her widowhood. And now Jesus is, is dying on the cross. After he dies, he will resurrect, but then he will ascend to heaven, right? So he's not going to be on earth much longer. And so Jesus is making sure that she's provided for. And so he entrusts his mom to John, who is the author of this gospel. And we're told that John is supposed to now regard her as his mother, and that John took Mary into his own house. And again, this is another example of Jesus honoring his mother, right? The, that fifth commandment in the ten, honor your father and mother, that was really important to Jesus. Uh, we see it in that Jesus uh, criticizes the Pharisees because they don't take that command seriously. You might remember there's, there's one point where he confronts them because they had this setup where they said, if you were going to use money to help support your parents in their old age, you have the option of giving that money to the temple treasury instead, and then you won't have to be responsible to your parents, and God will look on favor with you because you gave that money to the temple. Right? And this really ticks Jesus off. He gets upset about that. He says that this is an example of hypocrisy. Right? How you use the, the word of God to just line your pockets. Or twist it to just line your pockets. For Jesus, honoring your father and mother wasn't just about you know, sending a card on Mother's Day. It was about making sure that they were cared for when they couldn't take care of themselves. Jesus modeled that kind of honoring, even from the cross. Now, I know that what exactly our responsibilities are to aging parents is a complicated topic. I want to recognize that. Real life is messy, and we are all finite beings with a finite amount of time and energy and resources. And of course, to make things even more complicated, some of us may even have had parents who we are estranged from or parents who were abusive in some way. So life is complicated, and I don't want to try to simplify those complications in a way that make any of us feel shame this morning, who really shouldn't. But I will say this. If your parents are in that stage of life where they're losing independence and you're trying to help support them, you are engaged in a very Christ-like activity. You are laying down your interests for the needs of another. You are giving of yourself. You are living out that fifth commandment. You're doing something holy. And I pray that if you feel exhausted and hopeless and stretched way too thin, that God renews your spirit this morning. And that you see Christ on the cross caring for his mom and know that Christ is with you in this task of caring for your own parents. You know, even when it feels hopeless, in those hopeless times, I pray that God's grace shows up for you in surprising ways. So,
There you have it. Three interactions, all with different possible lessons. Mary and the 12-year-old Jesus at the temple, Mary and Jesus at the wedding in Cana, and Mary and Jesus at the cross. And in a moment, I'm going to close with prayer, and I, I hope that the prayer will kind of tie all of this together. But before I do that, I just want to note that Mary is mentioned one other time outside of the Gospels, by name. And it's significant. It's from the book of Acts. And we're told that this is right after Jesus' ascension. The disciples have been told to go wait in Jerusalem and to wait for the Holy Spirit to descend. Jesus was going to send the Holy Spirit. And it says that all the apostles are there in a room praying, waiting for the Holy Spirit. And who else is there? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Which means that Mary was a believer, a true believer. She recognized her own son as Lord. She recognized him as risen from the dead. And when you think about it, that is a pretty powerful sign that Jesus is who he said he was. Religious leaders can fool a lot of people, but fooling mom, that's harder, right? The same one who changed your diapers and knew you as a kid. That'd be pretty tough to do, and I'd even say impossible. But Mary testifies to us, this man is no ordinary man. This is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is God in the flesh. So let's pray. Lord, we pray that your spirit would guide us as we reflect on these stories. Lord, for those of us who wish we were parents but are not, help us to remember your words, that we should find our true family and those who seek to do your will. Help us to remember that we follow a Savior who never married, who never had physical children. Help us to remember that we can be fully human and fully alive, even apart from parenthood and marriage. Lord, for those of us who are parents of children, especially for the moms among us today, give us patience, give us strength as we face the anxieties that come with raising kids. Give us your peace and give us joy in our calling. Lord, for those of us who are um, parents of adult children, help us to know how to love our children well at this stage of life. Help us to let go when it's time to let go. Help us to give our blessing to our children's autonomy. For those of us who are adult children, help us to honor our parents. Help us to consider their needs and desires too. And to those of us caring for aging parents, help us to reflect back some of the sacrificial love that they have shown to us and the sacrificial love that you demonstrated on the cross. In Jesus' name. Amen.